Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is Why Is That, the podcast. People ask me how I keep my teeth from chattering in the wintertime. I leave them my locker. The year is 306 BCE. It has been 17 years since the death of Alexander the Great, and yet his generals, the Diadochi, continue to wage what seems an endless struggle for control of Alexander's massive empire. Ptolemy has established a successor kingdom in Egypt and holds control over the island of Cyprus, from which he directs his war against Antigonus Monothalmus. Monothalmus is an earned nickname that translates as Antigonus the One-Eyed. Antigonus established his successor kingdom in Asia Minor and northern Syria. This position made Antigonus and Ptolemy major rivals, and Cyprus a very important battleground, as Ptolemy used the city to launch raids into the territory of Antigonus. In response, Antigonus sent his son Demetrius to take the island and remove the threat. Demetrius took a large fleet and sailed from Athens to Caria in the spring of 306 to request assistance from the Rhodians. The Rhodians refused, and Demetrius was left alone to take the most important Hellenistic-era city on Cyprus, Salamis. After raiding and capturing two nearby towns, Demetrius defeated an army led by the brother of Ptolemy, who then retreated behind the walls of Salamis. Demetrius laid siege to the city and brutally attacked the walls with his siege tower known as Helopolis. The city had mere days remaining before all hope would be lost. Ptolemy had little choice except to try to save his brother and the valuable city. He personally led a fleet to attempt to lift the siege. Ptolemy's brother, Menelaus, had approximately 60 ships in the Salamis harbor, while Ptolemy commanded 140 warships and 200 transport ships. If Menelaus could free his ships or Ptolemy landed his transports, then the game would be up for Demetrius. It was a risk, but Demetrius made the tactical decision to place only 10 ships at the mouth of the harbor to block Menelaus's escape, while Demetrius led his remaining 170 ships against Ptolemy. Fleets crashed together with each side's strongest ships on the left flank. The plan for both navies was to overrun the weaker right flank and then smash the left from behind. Demetrius led from the left flank and won particular distinction for the bravery he showed when his ship was boarded. He beat back his assailants while one of his bodyguards fell and the other two were injured. He kept charging, hurling javelins, and striking with his spear. In the end, his left flank was victorious, and crucially, his left flank was victorious before his right flank broke. Even though Ptolemy's left flank had also been victorious, when he had swung his ships around for further attack, he was left facing a destroyed fleet in a lost battle. The ten ships left to blockade the harbor had held out just long enough that the only thing the sixty ships could do when they emerged from the harbor was surrender. Demetrius stood aboard his flagship after a hard-fought naval battle and perused his surroundings. The Battle of Salamis of 306 BCE is credited with destroying the naval power of Ptolemaic Egypt, and the loss necessitated the surrender of Salamis. As the wind whipped through Demetrius's hair and cooled his sweating face, he glimpsed a fluttering garment above him. As he readjusted his view, he realized the garment was attached to the winged figure of a woman. The woman slowly flapped her wings as she landed on the bow of Demetrius's ship. It was Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. She had watched the battle from above and was honoring the heroic and victorious Demetrius with her presence. She was the Greek personification of victory, and the ramifications of this battle certainly necessitated her approval. The scene of Nike landing on the bow of Demetrius's ship is one of the proposed inspirations of the winged victory of Samothrace, marble statue that today sits atop the Daru staircase at the Louvre Museum in Paris, France. 
The Louvre website credits a Rodian naval victory as the inspiration, but scholarly opinion varies widely, and going further into the debate does not really inform us further today. The presentation of the statue is a mix of grandeur and theatricality. It was one of the highlights of my trip to the Louvre two years ago, and it has been described as the greatest masterpiece of Hellenistic sculpture. If you do not have the opportunity to see it in person at the Louvre, then you can come visit my island in Animal Crossing. In the game, the Valiant Statue is based on the winged victory of Samothrace, and I have managed to get two versions of the statue, one for display in the museum and one for display in my living room. If you're unfamiliar with the statue, it depicts the Greek goddess of victory, Nike, in the form of a winged woman standing on the prow of a ship, braced against the strong wind blowing through her garments. The head has not survived through the years, but the delicate details of the body and wings show the level of craftsmanship dedicated to the statue that is estimated to have been built somewhere around the year 200 BCE, though if the Rhodian naval victory theory is correct, it was probably 190 BCE. Nike was an important symbol for the Greeks as the mediator of success between the gods and men. Her figure was drawn on for victory in war and in athletics. In the ancient Olympic Games, event winners were awarded a wreath made from an olive branch taken from a tree in the town of Olympia. When the Olympic Games were revived in 1896, winners were instead awarded with a silver medal and an olive branch. On the obverse side of the silver medal was the image of Zeus holding Nike. In later designs, Nike would become the primary focus. She was the embodiment of victory then, and remains so today. If you were to run across the letters N-I-K-E today, it is far more likely that they were referring to Nike, the shoe brand, and not Nike, the Greek goddess. In 1964, Nike was founded as Blue Ribbon Sports, and it is actually a pretty interesting story for how that name changed in 1971, before the company would grow to become the largest supplier of athletic shoes and apparel in the world. Before we get started, I do want to note that this episode is in no way, shape, or form sponsored by Nike. I just thought it was an interesting story and thought you might enjoy it. However, if you work at Nike and you want to sponsor this episode, my email is whyisthatpod at gmail.com. We'll talk soon. If there are limits to what we can do, I don't know what they are. This is a quote by William J. Bowerman, better known as Bill. He was born on February 19, 1911, in Oregon. He would become a decently successful collegiate football and track and field athlete while obtaining his degree from the University of Oregon. He taught high school biology and coached his school's football program to a 1940 state championship. The following year, the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and Bill enlisted. He served with distinction and attained the rank of major while on his tour of duty in Italy. For his service, he received a silver star and four bronze stars before being honorably discharged at the end of the war. Three years later, he became the head track and field coach at his alma mater. At the University of Oregon, Bill Bowerman became one of the most successful track and field coaches in history. In 24 years, he led the team to 23 winning seasons, 4 NCAA titles, and 16 top 10 finishes, while on an individual level trained 33 Olympic athletes, 64 All-Americans, 25 American record holders, 22 NCAA champions, and 16 sub-4-minute milers, which is particularly impressive since that mark was not broken until 1954, and for those less familiar with imperial measurements, equates to a running pace of under 2.5 minutes per kilometer for 1,600 meters. These are impressive feats on their own, and combined with having coached potentially the most beloved American distance runner in history, Steve Prefontaine, would have made Bill a much admired figure in the running world. The thing that really set him apart, though, was that he was an innovator. While coaching at the University of Oregon, Bill sought the advice of a local cobbler on the best technique to make shoes. 
He felt that a key to greater success could be found in superior equipment. Lighter shoes with better tread would lead to faster times. He started to tinker with tread patterns and material science to build better shoes, and by 1958, he was confident enough in his experiments to recruit his athletes to be his testers. One of Bill's earliest creations was designed specifically for one of his varsity distance runners, Phil Knight. Knight was a three-time letter winner for Oregon and completed his degree in journalism in 1959. From there, Knight enlisted in the Army, served a year, and then enrolled in the Stanford Graduate School of Business. While at Stanford, Knight wrote a paper titled, Can Japanese Sports Shoes Do to German Sports Shoes What Japanese Cameras Did to German Cameras? The premise was that high-quality, low-priced shoes imported from Japan would soon come to dominate the American market. He would complete his master's degree in business administration from Stanford in 1962. After graduation, Knight was determined to find out if his hypothesis was correct and took a trip to Japan. He made his way to Kobe in order to visit one of the oldest shoe manufacturers in Japan. Onitsuka Co. Limited had been launched in 1949 by the former military officer Kihachiro Onitsuka in hopes of raising post-war youth self-esteem through athletics. Initially, the company produced basketball shoes until they teamed with marathon runner Toru Terasawa in 1953 to develop a running shoe that would help prevent the development of blisters. The running shoe came to be known as the Tiger Brand Running Shoes. It was the Tiger Brand Running Shoes that interested Knight. He contacted Onitsuka to set up a meeting. In the meeting, Knight convinced Onitsuka that Tiger had a market in the United States and secured a distribution rights deal for the western United States. A year later, back in Oregon, Knight received his first shipment. From that original shipment, Knight sent two pairs to his former head coach. Bowerman had just won his first team NCAA title in 1962, and Knight figured if he could get a sale and an endorsement from Bowerman, he would be in an excellent position to turn a profit with this new import. Bowerman was impressed by the high quality and low price of the shoe compared to the German shoe giants of Puma and Adidas. In excess of Knight's expectation of an endorsement, Bowerman invited his former athlete to the school to further discuss the Tiger shoes. Bowerman offered to become a partner on the import business and to provide product design ideas for future development. Knight gladly accepted, and on January 25, 1964, the two men entered into a handshake agreement to form Blue Ribbon Sports Company with a business model of importing Tiger brand shoes and selling them at track events throughout the United States. Each man invested $500 and became 50-50 partners. Shortly after this initial agreement, Bowerman proposed going to a 51-49% partnership in favor of Knight in order to avoid gridlock and establish a clear leader for the company. Blue Ribbon was chosen as the name of the company for the combination of the association between blue ribbons and high quality and the fact that in the United States, blue ribbons were commonly awarded to the victors in athletic events. As they were peddling low-cost, high-quality athletic shoes, it seemed a perfect fit for the company. Both men recouped their initial investment within the first year as Blue Ribbon Sports sold 1,300 pairs of Tiger brand Japanese running shoes and grossed over $8,000. Over the next few years, sales continued to increase and the company expanded to the East Coast. In this time, Bowerman and Onitsuka collaborated directly to develop new shoes. Bowerman shared his ideas, which led to development such as a heel wedge to reduce stress on the Achilles tendon, and the first use of a full-length cushioning midsole that led to the development of the Cortez running shoe. After more than a decade of developing shoes for himself, his athletes, and blue ribbon sports, Bowerman decided to perform an experiment to explore a new traction idea. On a Sunday in early 1971, he decided to borrow his wife's waffle iron 
and took it into his garage. He poured a glop of liquid urethane onto the heated waffle iron in order to create a wholly new tread that he believed would allow his athletes to gain better traction and therefore produce faster results. This experiment gave birth to what is today known as Nike's iconic waffle tread that graced a large number of Nike shoes throughout the years. This new tread type was added to the Cortez running shoe, and suddenly Blue Ribbon Sports had a product that they believed they could not only sell, but manufacture and distribute themselves, cutting out the large cost of Onitsuka's cut. It was in part the development of the Cortez running shoe, in part a souring of the relationship between Blue Ribbon Sports and Onitsuka Tiger, and in part a want to expand into manufacturing following the early success of selling shoes that led to Knight and Bowerman terminating the relationship with Onitsuka. Owning the full process was the path to the largest profit and success. The only problem, the Blue Ribbon Sports brand did not really fit the image that Knight and Bowerman had for the company. In 1971, Knight and Bowerman had the product and the business plan, but not the name or logo. Interestingly, the logo actually came first. In addition to his work at Blue Ribbon Sports, Knight held a position as a professor teaching accounting classes at Portland State University. It was there that he met a design student named Carolyn Davidson, who he overheard mention she was unable to afford oil painting supplies for one of her courses. Knight offered her a job producing charts and graphs for one of his upcoming meetings. Due to the quality of work, he hired her to produce additional posters, ads, and flyers for the company. When Knight and Bowerman decided to launch their rebrand, they naturally tapped Davidson to design the shoe logo with the vague instructions that it should have something to do with movement. She presented Knight with five design ideas, one of which was the swoosh. Knight was not particularly captivated by any of them, but after telling Davidson, I don't love it, but it will grow on me, he selected the swoosh and paid his $35 invoice for her design. Production day crept nearer, and with the logo decided, Blue Ribbon desperately needed its new name. Knight's favorite option was Dimension 6. The company's third employee, Jeff Hollister, recalled that most assumed the name was inspired by Knight's love of the pop group The Fifth Dimension. The name dilemma had spread through the entire company and everyone had an opinion. Hollister had suggested the name Peregrine. It stayed in the same zone as the popular shoe brand Puma, and the Peregrine Falcon is the fastest member of the animal kingdom. It got little support from the other employees, and another instead suggested Bangle. No idea seemed to be liked by anyone else in the company, and none really seemed to fit the new shoe brand. The day before the production order was due to be submitted, Knight set the name deadline for 9 a.m. the next morning. Meanwhile, Blue Ribbon Sports' first-ever full-time employee was working out on the East Coast. His name was Jeff Johnson, and he was a former runner who was known for his free-thinking approach to business. He was hired by Knight in 1965, and in 1971 he would provide the company with its most distinguishable asset, the name. Johnson had been in the name brainstorming meetings, and that may be why on his next flight, when he picked up the in-flight magazine, he was drawn to an article about how great brand names become household terms. The examples given in the article were Kleenex and Xerox. The article proposed that the key to creating an impactful brand name was that the name should be no more than two syllables and have at least one exotic letter or contain a Z, X, or K sound. Johnson went to sleep trying to dream up a catchy term that fit those two parameters. At 6.30 a.m. the next morning he awoke with a start, and he knew he had it. Years later, Johnson would relate in an interview for Runner's World that, I've had one good idea in my life, and this was it. Headquarters were on the West Coast, so Johnson waited a few hours before calling his co-workers. When they answered, he exclaimed, I got it! Nike! The response? 
What the hell is that? Far from a resounding show of approval, Johnson explained the magazine article and that Nike was the Greek goddess of victory. It was thrown onto the pile of maybes. The name was eventually pitched to Knight, and he was skeptical. Nike? Sounds like a Jeff deal to me, Knight remarked. What happened to Dimension 6? The company's first president put it bluntly. Nobody seems to like Dimension 6 but you. This Nike thing would fit the shoes. The deadline with the factory was fast approaching. Knight responded, I guess we'll go with the Nike thing for now. I don't like any of them, but I guess that's the best of the bunch. The factory added the branding to the shoes, and the first Nike shoe went on sale on June 18, 1971. Considering the co-founder and chairman of the company was not convinced, it seems a bit funny to me that the brand name and logo have grown to be among the most iconic and recognizable ones in the world. Just over a year later, the most famous runner in the United States, Steve Prefontaine, wore a pair of Nikes at the Olympic trials. Soon the Nikes were everywhere. Today, Nike is the largest shoe manufacturer in the world, with a yearly revenue of $36.3 billion, $12 billion more than the number 2 Adidas. Interestingly, the number 7 brand is Asics, and before 1977, they were known as Anatsuka. The name is an acronym of the Latin phrase, Anima Sana Incorporo Sano, which translates to a sound mind in a sound body. As for the iconic slogan, just do it. It was created by the ad agency Wyden and Kennedy. The founder of the company, Dan Wyden, was inspired by the last words of Gary Gilmore. Gilmore had come to prominence after he was convicted of murder. He was sentenced to death by the jury unanimously. He was given the option of firing squad or hanging. Gilmore declared, I prefer to be shot. After several stays of execution, Gilmore demanded no more delays. The demand for the execution, combined with the fact that he was scheduled to be the first person executed in the United States in over a decade, led the media to cover the execution extensively. A squad of five volunteer law enforcement officers formed the firing squad. As they lined up to perform the execution, Gilmore was asked if he had any last words. He replied simply, Let's do it. A decade later, after a non-fiction book and a TV film starring Tommy Lee Jones depicted Gary Gilmore's execution, Wyden was tasked with creating a new campaign for Nike. He focused specifically on the do-it portion. For an athletic apparel company, Wyden wanted to capture a uniquely personal and universal message of motivation and inspiration. It was the ultimate statement of intention. He pitched Just Do It to Knight, and just like the name and logo, Knight was not a fan. Wyden convinced Knight to trust him and run the ad. It quickly became the biggest ad campaign of the year, and has helped the brand reach new and higher levels of brand engagement. In fact, in a 2019 Business Insider article, Just Do It was listed as one of the 15 best slogans and taglines in advertising history. And that is the story of how the name Nike went from representing a Greek goddess to representing a giant shoe brand. An employee read an in-flight magazine about great brand names and had an epiphany just in time to meet the deadline. The co-founder said, eh, it'll do for now. Next thing you know, it was the largest athletic brand in the world. That is all for today's episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Why Is That? As always, the show is hosted on Acast and can be found anywhere podcasts are streamed, including Podcast Republic, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and probably wherever you are listening to this right now. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Until next time, cheers.